Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad to have all of you with us for Political Rewind today. I'm uh, Bill Nygut. Um We've got a terrific panel in the studio. Before I introduce them, I want one last time today, at the end of the first week of our new schedule, I'm going to say it once more and hope that from now on it makes perfect sense to everybody. Uh, Political Rewind will now air at 9 a.m. weekdays, Monday through Friday. During the impeachment trial, we will not be on the air at 2 o'clock. But once the impeachment trial ends, you'll have two opportunities a day to listen to Political Rewind, 9 o'clock in the morning or, as we've always done in the past, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. If you're big followers of us on Facebook Live and you like commenting in real time, uh, you're going to do that at 9 o'clock on the 9 o'clock show because that's when uh, the Facebook Live feed and our live broadcast at 9 kind of sync up. You can always listen to or watch Facebook Live uh, uh, broadcasts of Political Rewind and add comments, which we look at, but they won't be in real time the way so many of you uh, like doing it unless you're doing it again at 9 a.m. And then, of course, our podcast is always available to you. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, and that's another place you can leave comments about the show. Our handle is politicsgpb. All right, so when the impeachment trial ends... We'll be on 9 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I hope that makes sense. If you have questions, send me an email, beniget at gpb.org, or put it on social media. All right, let's get on with the show today. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. He's here on Mondays and Fridays. He um, is in the paper on Wednesdays and Sundays with his column and oversees the Political Insider blog. And Jim Galloway, I think you win the award in terms of this morning schedule that we now have for coming the furthest. Longest commute, yeah. yeah. To get here. Yeah, yeah. Almost in Paulding County, not quite. Yeah, right. Of course, people are watching us on TV at 7 o'clock tonight, and so they're not quite as concerned about the fact that you got up extra early. But I do have to go back home, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you for making the long commute in. Uh, Next to you um, is uh, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, longtime elected official in any number of uh, positions in the state of Georgia, uh, labor commissioner, uh, state. He was school superintendent in DeKalb County, state legislator. <clears throat> excuse me, from Athens, candidate for United States Senate back in 2010. We could go on, couldn't we? Absolutely, but I am honored and privileged, thrilled to be with you well, this rainy day in Georgia. Yeah, we're always glad. You know, as you know, we always love pairing you up <clears throat> with the next panelist I want to introduce. Sam Olins, former attorney general of the state of Georgia, a longtime chair of the Cobb County uh, Commission, now an attorney with Denton's. Uh, Sam, you know it's great to have you and Mike on oh, together. A, it, I think it's our honor. I mean, we both very much respect each other. He's a great public servant, and it's my honor to, to be with all of you this morning. And we have one of the really strongest journalists uh, who comes to uh, be part of Political Rewind on occasion with us this morning, Patricia Murphy. Patricia, formerly 
uh, on the other side of the line, worked uh, on the Hill for uh, Sam Nunn, uh, worked uh, uh, for uh, Max Cleland, now a columnist uh, for Roll Call. Uh, Columns are syndicated. But the big one that I always point out is, your culture stuff is in Garden and Gun. How cool is that? It's super cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome, and it's a good way to make a few dollars. Yeah. It's a real yeah. honor to work for them, and I always get to do interesting things when I'm writing for Garden so and Gun. So what's the most recent thing you worked on for Garden and Gun? Just for the for a moment, tell us. Uh, well, so I actually wrote about Ted Turner's son, Rhett Turner, oh. who is a very accomplished documentarian and uh, had talked about uh, talk to him about the work that he does and how that supports his family's commitment to um, sustainability and eco- ecological um, sensitivity. And that entire family is so committed to the environment, climate change. They were so far ahead of the yeah. curve on that. Yeah. And the work that he's done over his career telling those stories has been really, um, really lovely, especially with a lot of things happening in the southeast. So that's why I talked to him about okay. that. It was really wonderful. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Jim, let's go right into politics. Uh, we had another long day in the United States Senate yesterday. The um, House managers had their second full day of op- what is considered to be the opening statement. <clears throat> they may not only be opening statements, they may be the only statements they'll get to <clears throat> make. Um and today they are finishing up. Yesterday they worked on the first article, which is uh, uh, abuse of power. Today they'll take up the second article, which is obstruction of Congress. I, let me just ask and go around because is there a point of diminishing returns here? I know that I've tried to stay as focused as possible on watching a lot of the testimony, but at a certain point it is repetitive. Um, they're laying out their case very methodically. I mean, it's admirable to watch how carefully they've built the case, how they're using video and all of that. But is there a point of diminishing returns? Uh, <clears throat> well, a couple of th- a couple of things. Uh, number one, you're seeing you are seeing some uh, some incredible uh, rhetoric from from Adam Schiff and Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, I, I, on the on the drive in to work this morning, you know, I get a phone call from my wife, and she says, "You've got to go back because I I, I I turn in fairly early." And she says, "You mm-hmm. got to go. You've got to go watch uh, Adam Schiff's closing statement uh, from last night." And uh, but I, the the timing is interesting. This is uh, they start at one and they go deep into the hours, so you are reaching kind of a different audience, I think. Uh, I mean, after six o'clock, you're 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 getting you're probably picking up people who might not have been engaged. So so that that may be one reason for the for the repetition. Uh, the other part is, of course, this is a trial, and in a trial, yeah, you you repeat and you repeat and you repeat. Yeah, but Sam Olin's opening these are again framed as opening statements. It's not as if they're making uh, openings that might even run three four hours and then interviewing witnesses, whatever. This is all speechifying. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen a case, no matter how complex, civil, criminal, whatever, where if you couldn't get your point across in two hours, you couldn't get your point across. Uh, The only thing this is doing is hardening the positions on both sides of the aisle. Uh, 24 hours is absurd and obscene uh, to, to be pandering to the folks that you want to pander to. You know, when when you consider it that you use that word very 
um, um, specifically, it's intentional. you consider it pandering. Okay, oh, just absolutely. want to make sure. I, I think this is all the gin up both bases for the November election. So, you know, for instance, shortly, uh, one of our colleagues this morning, Mike Thurman, will do his annual state of the county at DeKalb County. More people are paying attention to what he says at that lunch talk than, are, than the average American is paying attention to these displays every day. In fact, the last thing I'd highlight in this point, if possible, is more people watch Zion Williamson's first NBA game than watch the first day of proceedings by the House managers. Well, that's the not, first okay. day. I got you. Patricia? So I think there are some structural uh, differences in this impeachment trial that are very important. Um, for the Clinton impeachment trial, for any judicial impeachment, which the Senate does with some regularity, you know, every five or 10 years or so, it typically goes through the Senate Judiciary Committee. So this, to me, has the feeling of one of those long, laborious committee meetings that go on for days and days. And typically, the most recent impeachment did go on for days and days at the committee level. They have skipped the committee process and gone straight to the Senate floor. I think also the House managers do not know if they're going to have another bite at this apple. They don't know if there will ever be a witness ever another piece of evidence. And the truth is, and several senators have said this, they did not watch the House proceedings on the other side when there were witnesses and when there was evidence presented. And so this is new to many of them. The details are literally new to some of them. I, Mike, and I, that's important because they're voting on it. I, I th- what Patricia said is interesting, Mike. I, we have heard that we think that, that, that <coughs> there are any number of senators on both sides of the aisle who, when the House was doing its hearings, may not have been able to pay as much attention, may not have wanted to pay much attention. And so, and we've heard from some of them that, yeah, this is new information for them. Um, so one of the arguments, I'm going to give you a chance to say whatever you want, but one of the arguments that I think you might make in favor of this laborious process is, if, if nothing else, the way that they've lay, they're laying out this case when Republicans decide to vote not to do anything more, when they just say, no witnesses, we're going to um, acquit, the Democrats will have had a strong, uh, be able in a strong position to say, look at everything we laid out for them, and they still turn their backs on this. Yes? Oh, absolutely. But let's not overlook one fact. The House managers, and as well as the Republicans and Democrats, they're not, the audience is not the senators. The audience of the hundreds of millions of, of Americans who are will go vote in November 2010, 2020. That's what this is about. And I've had a change of heart in recent speeches uh, during King Day. One of the things I've emphasized is that the House voted to impeach. In all probability, the Senate will not convict. In my mind, it's a tie. Ultimate vote votes will be cast in November 2020. The net result will be the determination, the determining factor will be whether or not ultimately President Trump is removed from office or remains in office will not be decided by the 100 men and women in the Senate. It will be decided by the millions of Americans who will go and vote. This is a prelude to 2020. So don't be discouraged and people who are waiting or hoping that the Senate might uh, vote to convict. I don't think it's going to happen unless something dramatic happens that we don't perceive right now. But one thing is certain. 
Remember a backbencher, a backbenching congressman named Newt Gingrich? <laughs> yeah. Who would make speeches late into the night that everyone just assumed no one was listening to? These managers and the men and women in the House are speaking to that audience. So, uh, Jim Galloway, uh, you mentioned that your wife Judy uh, said to you, hey, you need to uh, listen to Adam Schiff's closing on the second day of their opening arguments. Um, I have just a little bit of it. I want to play two sound bites back to back. First, I'd like to play a little of the uh, closing argument that, that your wife said was important to listen to. And it's getting a lot of buzz in Democratic circles uh, this morning because it appeared to be extemporaneous. Uh, Ship was not looking down at notes. He seemed to be speaking, some people thought, from the heart. So let's play that, and then let's follow it immediately with the most recent on-air comments of David Perdue and how he feels about this so we can have some balance and then talk about each of them. Let's start with pick up Adam Schiff as he's making his closing last night. Framers couldn't protect us from ourselves if right and truth don't matter. And you know that what he did was not right, but here right is supposed to matter. It's what's made us the greatest nation on earth. No constitution can protect us. Right doesn't matter anymore. And you know you can't trust this president do what's right for this country. You can trust he will do what's right for Donald Trump. He'll do it now. He's done it before. He'll do it for the next several months. He'll do it in the election if he's allowed to. This is why if you find him guilty, you must find that he should be removed. Because right matters. Because right matters. And the truth matters. Otherwise, we are lost. That's Adam Schiff last night. Now we're going to listen to David Perdue, who made comments on Hugh Hewitt's uh, radio show just a couple of days ago. Hugh, this is you've said it, but this is just an illegitimate process. I, I worry, and I've said this before, I, I wanted to just vote to dismiss now upon receipt of the articles, because frankly, the, the articles are illegitimate. And what we're doing is historically very dangerous because we're accepting an illegitimate result from a totally bogus sham trial over in the uh, House. There you go, Jim. You know, uh, one thing that's that, that that's very different from the Clinton impeachment trial here is that uh, you know, and 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 and, and Michael's right. Both of uh, this one's going to end in an acquittal. Uh, Clinton's ended in an acquittal. But one thing that was different with has been, has been different with the Clinton trial is that you had many Democrats say, "I condemned, I condemn his action. What he did was disgusting, but it doesn't rise to the level of a pe- impeachment." And you have not seen you you have not seen that you have not seen any acknowledgement of the facts of the case among Republicans this time. They will not concede uh, any wrongdoing on Donald, <clears throat> Donald Trump's part. And that's you know one solution that was considered in the House was 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 a, a resolution of censure, which would have made sense. But you could not get any any traction among House Republicans for that action. And so I think what you had you had uh, Democrats in a way driven to this, uh, driven to the to 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 this extreme measure. 
Uh, I'm interested. You're, That's you're, a great point. You're going to post a column. It's not posted quite yet, is it? No, no. Uh, but you are. We'll see it in the next few hours. And one of the interesting comments you make about the trial so far is you say this is going to be one of the most, uh, 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 one of the clearest and perhaps most historic examples of jury nullification <laughs> that we're likely to see in our lifetime it, for sure. I uh, disagree, but please proceed. <laughs> yeah, not, well, not nullification of the law. We're not talking about that. Nullification of the facts. I, I still disagree. You know, if you look at the history of uh, Article 2, Section 4, it originally was bribery and treason, and then after much discussion and an 8-3 to three vote, they added high crimes and misdemeanors. That was not intended to be a kitchen sink. That was intended to be a high bar. When the best argument you can make is you have to do what's right, that's the kitchen sink. You don't remove a president on a low bar because it creates big problems for presidents of both political parties down the road. You know, I don't personally think that call was perfect. I don't think Obama, when he was thinking he was off mic, saying, just wait till after re-election to the Russian president and we'll get stuff done, was perfect either. Presidents aren't perfect. Presidents always want to accentuate executive privilege to the max. And what we have here is a rush job for political effect. And yes, it's all about November 2020, as Mike Thurman said. But boy, are they blowing any ability to get anything done in the meantime. Um, The House would argue, Nancy Pelosi would argue, Patricia, that in fact, they've been continuing to send bills over to the Senate uh, throughout all of this process, and it's at the Senate where they haven't been taking them up even before they had to deal with the trial. Well, actually, the Senate did take it up, and they passed a bunch of bills last well, December. Okay, <laughs> that's right. With you. But but yes. there have been terrible concerns that a lot of there was a logjam over there. That, that yes, which happens in divided government. I think that um, Republican the Republican Senate sees its job as to dismiss most of the Democratic bills that come over, um, unless it's something they could work with. And even the president has pushed them to work on some of those things, like USMCA. Um, I do think uh, uh, to go back to what you had mentioned before. Um, We see Democrats talking a lot about President Trump and what President Trump did, to Jim's point. Uh, I have not heard a single Republican talk about anything but the process of the impeachment itself. I think the process is important, but I think Republicans are risking a lot by not going out and defending what the president did if they can, yeah, and I, I don't was, know if they can. Well, that's Mike. That's what's going to be fascinating tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon. I guess they're trying to start a little earlier because the chief justice won't have business at the Supreme Court in the morning on a Saturday. It's going to be fascinating to see what the defend the lawyers who are defending the president how they make their case. What on what grounds are they going to respond to many of the points that have been made by the prosecutors in this case, line by line? Or are they going to continue this broader, more general process defense? I think Patricia is absolutely right. It's process. But you can be wrong and not impeachable. That's the point. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can act inappropriately, uh, unethically, and still not rise to the level of removal from the presidency. What Jim Galloway has pointed out, which is a profound real statement, is that no basic Republican, the leadership, has not even acknowledged that it was wrong. 
And I, I think the timing is really important as well, um, because we are in the midst of a presidential nominating process for the Democrats. <clears throat> and I talked to a lot of Democratic voters who have a very sophisticated opinion, and uh, pro- they're processing this information, saying, what if we removed President Trump? Then we have President Pence. Can we beat President Pence? What are the unintended consequences of removing a president from office right before an election? All of that is going into this, should he be removed from office? Uh, The risk Republicans run by not defending the president on its merits is that in all of the polling that does, maybe even a majority says, don't remove him from office. Did he break the law? Yes. Did he lie? Yes, talking about the president. A lot of this polling is showing the the lack of defense for the president from Republicans is allowing these other negatives on the president to go up, up, up. All right. um, Let's do this. I I do want to take up one uh, tweet that we just got from uh, 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 Lindsay Holland. She says the idea that no one is watching. Last night, Twitter disagreed. She says the hashtag right matters was trending within minutes of Schiff's speech ending. That's fascinating, Jim. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And 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 and, and I, 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 I do want to see. The, I don't know. Do, do, do uh, does Nielsen uh, rate? Yeah. Like the cable uh, we yes. news? we, we yes. have numbers. For, I've seen numbers from the first day of the argument uh, of the um, House uh, House managers argument. Seven plus million uh, uh People watching—that's not a bad number for 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 a day. It's it's not going to make it a hit a, a TV show forever. It'll be interesting as we watch the numbers come in day two today and and moving forward and, from here. Whether or not those seven million are the undecided yeah. voters, yeah, you know, basically the bases on both sides have already decided. Yeah, either remove him and or he's innocent. The real question is who are the seven million? Are those people people who can be influenced? by the debate, by the arguments, and by the evidence, whatever it might be. So Faust just told me that I got that number wrong. It was 11 million on the first day, not 7 million, which and is Zion pretty, Williamson pretty good. And Zion Williamson had more. Had, huh? And Zion Williamson had more. Yeah, I bet that's right. Tell everybody who that is in case they're not paying <laughs> attention to basketball. Well, so as the husband of a Dukey, uh, he was the star Duke basketball player <laughs> yeah. who was the number one yeah. draft pick Bill. for the NBA. Yeah. But, but look, when... when uh, when the speaker high fives Bill Maher when when she says no matter what happens, Trump is impeached for life. Yeah. Okay. Or when she has ceremonial pens at the signing for the process to move to the Senate, that tells you all you need to know about the fact this is a show. Right. This so, isn't a constitutional crisis. All right. That's our impeachment segment for today. We're going to keep on top of it. Before we take a break and come back and talk about uh, uh, other stories in the news, Sam, I have bad news for you. Uh, Tom Faust just looked it up. Zion Williamson's debut had 2.8 million as opposed to the 11 million watching the impeachment. I'm not sure you're trustworthy for the rest of this particular show. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk so with are, Tom. Are, are they checking my state of the county number now? Don't check my state of the county Tom number. Tom is not a dookie. Yeah. We can tell. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break and we'll be right back. Hi, it's David Green here. That extra car, the one you'd like to get rid of, what to do, right? Selling it, I mean, it can be such a hassle. So why not donate it to support this station? Here's how. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars. 
That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks. Support for GPB programs comes from our listeners and the Georgia Council on Developmental Disabilities and Gracie's Law Advocacy Day on January 29th. The public can educate legislators about discrimination against potential organ transplant recipients with disabilities. Info at gcdd.org. And the Harry Jacobs Chamber Music Society at Augusta University presenting the Minget Quartet with guest pianist Andreas Klein Tuesday, January 28th at Maxwell Theater. Tickets and more information at augusta.edu slash harryjacobs. Uh, I wanted to start by asking Jim Galloway a question. we got a number of things we can talk about out of the legislature, and we will. But I think, given the people in this room today, we should talk about the Senate race. We should talk specifically as a starting point about Senate race number two, where Sherry Boston, who may not be a name that most of our listeners know, but is a highly respected uh, uh, district attorney in DeKalb County, African-American woman, uh, very well thought of, was being named by many people as a really uh, a strong potential candidate for Senate race number two. She announced the other day she's not going to seek that office. This is this is true. This is true. Um, and I think we are obliged to ask uh, one of these panelists that we've got here. Well, and let's to set That's that it. up, Mike Thurman. One of the reasons we imagine Sherry Boston decided not to make the race is it's increasingly clear that Raphael Warnock, Ebenezer Baptist Church, is laying plans to jump into Senate race number two. If if Raphael Warnock jumps in, uh, uh, Mike, uh, will you endorse his cam- candidacy? <laughs> Uh, a hypothetical wrapped in a hypothetical. Uh, what I can say is this, that uh, in one of the, my principles of politics, that it's still early. It's never late in politics. It's always early. And I would suggest that as it relates to Senate race number two, uh, that uh, we allow the process to continue, allow qualifying uh, to take place, and then we'll know who will actually be challenging? Well, I, okay, for that so seat. you know we're playing cute with you because there <laughs> no, are many people. You kidding? There are many people who, of course, have suggested that you would be a very strong candidate in Senate race number two. So rather than being cute about it, do you now think it's still the time if Warnock gets in? It, it, for you to consider this race, or is politics the sort of process that unfolds slowly enough that you could look at a race two years down the road? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I'm honored that anyone would think that I would be qualified and, and, and have the talents necessary to run and or serve in the U.S. Senate. Uh, I'm really, really focused on my job as CEO of the Cal County, <laughs> which I just adore. <laughs> would, would it be fair to say that the, the proposed bill in the legislature that would create an early qualifying period would have an effect on what you run for? I, well, Mr. AG, that's an interesting question that you just asked, that I choose not to answer right now. Well, <laughs> Sam, that's, I, you know, we have, we spent a little time talking about that, but, but explain this because it's really important to how uh, the Senate race unfolds. Um, there are those who believe that that qualifying for Senate race number two, and you probably know the answer to this, under statutory, uh, the statutes, 
wouldn't take place till 60 days before that November special election. The Secretary of State's office would say, nah, we're gonna, we think we're going to hold qualifying for that Senate race number two the same time we do for the first Senate race in all the other state offices, which is in March. Why does that make a difference? Well, in theory, you could have the loser of the first election then get a second bite at the apple for the second Senate election. It gives gives people numerous opportunities. It also provides some timing preferences to certain candidates. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Jim. And then I want to answer more seriously your question. Good. Okay. All right. So, so uh, yes, uh, there is a Georgia statute that says that you cannot close off qualifying until 60 days before a, a special election uh, when, when it involves the U.S. Senate. All right. The Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has kind of taken issue with that. And yet... Uh, he has caused to be introduced House Bill 757, which would clarify that issue and 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 would 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 distinctly give him the power to set the qualifying for that race. Now here's where it gets interesting, because you're opening the code section. You're opening the the the, the, the code section uh, that that has to do with the elections. I was talking to Bob Trammell. Uh, on House uh, Minority Leader uh, out of out of out of Luthersburg, uh, Luthers, Luthersville, a Democrat. Uh, he is interested in amending that bill simply to put Senate race number two on a normal track with a May primary instead of an all-comers vote in, in November, followed by a, a general election. And he thinks he might be able to pick up, and I think he's right, he might be able to pick up some support from supporters of Doug Collins uh, in, in, the, in the state legislature. All right, this starts to get huh. to be a lot to unpack, Mike. Um, if you push the qualification uh, period up till March, one of the things that Sam is suggesting is it doesn't give you much time to decide at this point if you are going to get into the race or not. So if we can focus just on you for a minute, you said you'd answer my question seriously. Well, it, just this past weekend, my wife says, she said, you know, this is the most relaxed that I've ever seen you uh, conduct yourself or you being in the 30 plus years that I've known you. I'm at peace with who I am and where I am. Uh, early on in my career, and Sam can talk about this, you always thought about the next election and what you had to do to position yourself either to get elected or re-elected. At this point, you have to begin to think not about the next election but the next generation, and i.e., how can you best serve the people of this state and of this nation? And if I can best serve and continue to believe I can best serve uh, DeKalb, Georgia, and America, SCO, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not really uh, uh, attracted just by the next election. I know that's what drives a lot of people. That doesn't drive me. You know, Patricia, you've been there. You worked in the Senate. Um, I get that the notion of being one of 100 in the most exclusive club, certainly in America, if not in the world, is very appealing. Great parking, right at, <laughs> right And usually on the someone grounds. will actually drop you off. Right. You don't even have you to park. You don't even have to park. I mean, <laughs> great dining room. All that. But given the state of the United States Senate today, where it's gridlock continually, partisan uh, feuding ongoing, I, you do have to wonder why it's such an attractive prize out there right now. I will always think that the Senate is the best job in America. 
unfortunately, the process to get to the Senate is one of the worst experiences in life. Do you think it's one of the best Other jobs? than a terminal illness, <laughs> to be honest. It's ugly. It's expensive. It's demeaning. It's dishonest. It's difficult. It's hard on your family. It's hard on the people who care about you. Um, and money is the most important thing at, at a certain point. You can kind of get past that after you've got the money taken care of, but it's very expensive and you have to do a lot of bad things to raise that money in some cases. So I understand why people would want to be in the Senate. I also understand why they would take a pass on this race in particular because of the money involved in running a jungle primary, maybe a runoff, running again in two years against a woman who's going to write a check to outspend you by a by tenfold without thinking twice about it. Sam, as you sit there, well, you can answer anything you want, but I'm going to throw something out. I realized this as I'm looking at you while, while Patricia's talking is you were an extraordinarily successful Cobb County chair. I mean, you were um, well-liked by both sides. You won re-election. You, you never had a problem winning re-election. When you looked at the next office you wanted, it, it didn't Turn, you didn't turn to Washington. You wanted to be in Georgia. You thought maybe governor. You ended up with the attorney general's race. So the, it, if I'm wrong, tell me, but going to Washington never seemed to be a particularly important goal on your political uh, horizon. So it was never there. Uh, the only reason that I chose to go from chair to AG was I frankly missed being so uh, little involved in the law. Unfortunately, I did not realize due to hyperpartisanship that the job of the state attorney general became less about being a lawyer and me about being hyperpartisan, which I absolutely hated. Which is one of the reasons you left early. Right. But with regard to Mike, you know, when, when he took over uh, the DeKalb school system, clearly everyone's going to acknowledge it was in the trash can. Not the students and not a lot of the faculty, but the process involved. And Mike did an amazing job bringing back the DeKalb school system. He has similarly done an amazing job bringing back the DeKalb county government. It was not in good shape when he took it over, infighting among the commissioners. He's, he's done a, a tremendous job there, too. And um, being at peace with yourself is really important, but also knowing that you make a difference at the local level where it hits the ground the most is really important. And the, the truth is DeKalb's in a much better position now than the first day he took office. And we all owe him a lot of, of, uh, of credit for that. Do you want to weigh in? I just wanted to end on a high note about the Senate. Um, <laughs> uh, good people make a difference on the Senate. And you look at somebody like Johnny Isaacson, he built bridges yeah. that will last a generation, literally and figuratively. Um, so if you can get through the process, it's a job that can have an impact on millions of people and on the and on history. I, thank you. I As think... a United States senator, I would not have stated whether or not I would vote to convict or exonerate mm. the president prior to hearing the evidence. I think that was a huge mistake. When our leaders predetermine outcomes, irrespective of what the evidence might show, that undermines the process, and it becomes, as Sam talked about, just a partisan show. Yeah, right. And it's not just on the Democrat side, but when Republicans send the state up front that, hey, I'm not going to vote to convict even before the evidence is presented, 
it undermines the Constitution and is not, uh, I think, in the best interest of the country. So, Jim, we're not going to get a clear decision on this show today, but Mike Thurman doesn't sound like somebody who's getting set to mount a Senate campaign. Uh, I, I will tell you, there is probably... Uh, it, it is possible for a political figure to get more done as DeKalb County's CEO than uh, than as uh, a member of one in a hundred, yeah. uh, especially in a, in a system that uh, that that rewards seniority. You know, uh, Mike, you'd have to be there for another twenty years to get a chairmanship. Well, and it depends. <laughs> but to your point, though, Bill, I reject that idea. Hey, I want to be a senator. Yeah, so That's let my me point. just run. Yeah. I think I've spent my entire life preparing to serve in whatever position I'm in. Okay. You that, gotta have that to a me record. is not a no. Okay. Well, you're, oh, it's not a no. It's just, we'll, so, well, we'll watch well, it you unfold. You never know when the yeah. election might right. break out. So, that's so true. you have all to right. be ready. All right. right. Let's, all right. Thank, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, uh, CEO Thurman. Uh, Jim, let's, let's talk just for a minute uh, about race number one. And here's the context. Teresa Tomlinson continues to pick up really significant endorsements. The newest one, she, Jason Carter, has now endorsed her for United States Senate. We still don't. We're going to won't be until next week that we'll see fundraising figures for all of the candidates mm-hmm. in that race and all the other races. We we have seen numbers from Ossoff because he's proud that he's up to about two million dollars. But at a time when nobody's paying attention to the Senate races because of the, what's going on in Washington, how significant and how much can things like Jason Carter's endorsement help Teresa really continue to be felt as a real presence in that race? Jason Carter will help you in Metro Atlanta. Right. I, I think I think the more important endorsement that she rolled out this week, and she is running an endorsement machine. I yes. mean, she's got it. She's yeah. got that. She's got that calendar kind of yep. timed timed yep. down. I think the more important endorsement is is that of Sanford Bishop. That yeah okay uh, because uh, again. This is a Democratic primary. The African American vote is going to be uh, is is going to be preeminent, and if if she's she has been building that all along, uh, so I th- I think that's uh, she she's made herself a formidable a formidable Democratic candidate. I think Patricia, how have you watched that race unfold? I mean, she's not alone in the race. We also should say that. Uh, in in fairly new news, Sarah Amico has now given up her position in her family uh, business so she can focus full time on running. So we need to acknowledge that. Um, then you have John Ossoff. John Ossoff out there running a grassroots campaign, raising a lot of money. Uh, Ted Terry continuing to be uh, the guy with a message he believes in this campaign. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to shortchange any of them. But I was fascinated by these two big endorsements this week. Yeah, well, and I think that um, it reflects Tomlinson's attributes as somebody with uh, a important experience. She spent a lot of time building relationships in this state, um, and she is she's a good, solid, substantive candidate. Um, her real challenge is breaking through in this news cycle. Uh, you've got to break through in the news cycle to raise some serious cash, especially from grassroots donors. And that's this enormous advantage that John Ossoff has. Because he ran in that special election for the 6th, he has a monster fundraising list that he can send out. And um, he's remembered very favorably from uh, from people in that last race, especially among grassroots donors. So He's got. He has this. He has this incredible um, uh, sort of 
ability to raise money in a way that none of these other candidates are going to really be able to compete with. If, 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 we, can, if we can kind of pick up on the, the two fellows here who have run for office. Um, OK, you've got a presidential contest. And you've got two U.S. Senate contests in Georgia. Uh, to Patricia's point, I mean, that's got to be soaking up a whole lot of cash for 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 uh, other candidates. Sam. And, so look, my my guess is uh, it's going to be what, like about eight hundred fifty thousand dollars a week for TV ads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, few folks can do eight hundred fifty thousand dollars a week for say six weeks. To get a point across, I mean that takes real money. I know when I was statewide, it was about six hundred fifty thousand, and you took a big gulp. And and Bloomberg is raising the price. I, absolutely, yeah. no question about it. I mean, I, I frankly seem to, you know, I know I'm not the D at the table, but I, I tend to see it between Ossoff and Tomlinson, mm. um, and uh, and I think the two of them are the two big big players in that race. And uh, Asaf's money won't make the difference when you have all the money going on uh, with regard to the president's race and you got Bloomberg's money. I, I think grassroots and uh, literally getting fans all across the state are much more important. Well, I agree. And if you look at campaign expenditures, three categories, name recognition to defend against attacks and then turn out the vote. With Trump on the ballot, the vote is coming. Mm. Right. You don't have to invest in that. It's coming. So really, any candidate, now the question is, what is your name recognition and how much do you have to spend and how much do you have to invest in defending against attacks? So candidates with name recognition will have to spend less. And then there's only one category left, which is to defend against attacks. Is it hard? Mike, would you I'm sorry, Mike, would you agree with me uh, that in the African-American community, Having Sanford Bishop by your side is worth an awful lot of cash. Well, it's, it's extremely important, particularly in southwest Georgia, Macon, and that area where he's a legendary figure, quite frankly. But about 75 percent of the African-American vote is in metro Atlanta. So at the end of the day, that will determine the winner of that race and any other Democratic primary because of the change in population. If you look at what has occurred— uh, Southwest Georgia, some other parts of the state, the numbers have declined, but the mushroom exploded in Metro Atlanta. Patricia? Oh, my question for you two, do they need to do voter education because there are two Senate races? Does that create a dynamic that is difficult to run for Senate when there are two races happening at the same uh, time? Under, under different rules. Exactly. Well, yes, but uh, I think what, and I, you know, I've not talked to the candidates about this. Uh, I think it creates a a synergy. Uh, I know people on the national level see it as a twofer. So if you invest money to turn out the vote for one, you're actually turning out the vote for two. So you can actually turn a dollar into two dollars when you got two Senate races open. All right, let's do this. We got to get another break out of the way when we come back. couple of uh, items about legislature I'd love to take up. Uh, this is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. A week of political drama on the main stage. This for that. And in the wings. Major sleazebags. They're very dishonest people. Very, very dishonest people. The impeachment trial of the president takes center stage. But what else happened this week? I'm Todd Zwillick. It's the Friday News Roundup. That's next time on 1A. 
Join us for 1A this morning at 10 right here on GPB. You can also listen live online at gpbnews.org. Support for GPB comes from our monthly sustainers. And Columbus's River Center for the Performing Arts presenting the national tour of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats with all new lighting and choreography. Winner of seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, February 11th and 12th, rivercenter.org. And Primary Care Associates, Navicent Health Physician Group, working to meet the unique health care needs of individuals and families throughout Central Georgia. More information is available online at navicenthealth.org PCA. Uh, welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, in the studio today, uh, Patricia Murphy, Sam Olins, Mike Thurman, and Jim Galloway. Uh, terrific to have all of you here uh, for the show today. Um, Jim, let, let's talk just for a few minutes about th- what's going on down at the Capitol. Um, and and I, after, I want to get you to weigh in, but, but Sam Olins is the Republican in the room. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say about this, too. We know that Republicans here and really across the country have been very proud of the record that Nathan Deal compiled uh, in terms of criminal justice reform. Uh, he touted it. Uh, other states have tried to emulate it to an extent, and Democrats have praised him for it as well. And yet, um, you guys at the AJC point out that it appears that that Governor Kemp is beginning a sort of a, a rollback of some of this that we were all so pleased to see Nathan take on. Talk about that. Yeah, you've got. Um You've got a couple things happening. Number one, of course, uh, the budget is 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 going to be highly contentious this year, and 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 you you do have uh, especially in the House some uh, some some uh, some pent up anger uh, uh, among Republicans uh, about being uh, for being locked out of a of the budget trimming process that went on after from September uh, in, until until December. Among those cuts. You've got three million uh, uh, that that the Governor Kemp has removed from the uh, from from the uh, uh, Public Defender Council, uh, so you've so you've reduced that. Now th- those are vacant positions, but they're they're still positions that will will be no more. Uh, you have uh, a another two million cut uh, from the uh, from the, uh, the, uh, the 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 panel that oversees the accountability courts which and, and were that's really the really big feature important. that that was the yeah. big feature of criminal justice yeah. reform yeah. was you gave the you empowered these judges to work one on one with defendants uh, to 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 kind of put them through a a a, a roadmap of of how to get their lives back on track, holding hold, holding holding prison time over their heads. But if they if they complied, then they then they stayed out of jail, and that that was kind of the object. Yeah. So here's just a couple of examples. More, there are others out there, but Sam, you of course were Attorney General during the first uh, uh, term and and beyond of Governor Deal. So clearly, I would have imagined you were, had a play had a role to play in all of these reforms. We're certainly consulted on them. How are you viewing what's going on right now? So we were involved in drafting. Yeah, so some of that, some of that legislation, uh, and uh, very involved in it. You know, frankly, I think the article, while it's fair to say these are proposed budget cuts, I, I think it's still baking in the oven. Oh yes, and, oh yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think a lot of times the governor and the legislature are involved in a negotiating posture which is in a room with four or six people rather than the full public. 
So I think until you see the final budget, you won't know whether the storyline is accurate or inaccurate. Um, you know, it, it seems to me that there were certain things the governor wanted last year that were with regard to criminal justice reform, and the legislature didn't give him those monies. So I, I think there's a little bit of yeah, you're saying, Patricia, I think one thing Sam is saying here is that if you're an agency head in a year when the governor's demanding 6% cuts in next year's budget for this year, when you go into these budget hearings that have gone on all this week, uh, you do want to make a, a case for the worst things that could happen if you lose your money. So there is some of that uh, happening here, uh, but we don't know what the governor's appetite. He, We do know that he's taking money and putting it into his gang unit uh, which some people question the validity of. So some of it's real. Some of it's real. Um, also, for somebody who wanted that money to stay in there, getting an article out there about the, a potential cut is a pretty good thing to right. happen for your issue because right. you'll have conversations like this. Um, and certainly the, it was so groundbreaking for Governor Deal, but it was a very clearly an initiative of Governor Deal's. I don't think we know if deep in his heart of hearts, if Governor Kemp shares the same commitment to the types of reforms that um, that Governor Deal made. And I think this will be an opportunity to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing one thing you you have seen this week, this week has been devoted to budget hearings and you've had uh, individ, uh, individual department heads come up before uh, a, a kind of a, a, a committee of, of Senate and House budget writers. Uh, I, I think I've seen more dissent from department yeah. heads this year than I've seen in a, in quite a long time. You had Gary Black, who's independently elected. He's the agricultural uh, commissioner for the state of Georgia, uh, get up there and say with the with the cuts that that Governor Kemp is requiring of him, uh, he's going to have to le- uh, leave a lot of food safety inspection to the federal government. And of course, that 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 instills a whole lot of confidence. You've had uh, you've had uh, the department head of of uh, that oversees uh, mental health care in Georgia saying it's uh, this is this is going this is going to be uh, devastating to that population. It's yeah. unprecedented. You know, I served in the Mill administration. I can't even imagine as a department head articulating a position. That's in opposition to what the governor recommended. It just doesn't happen. But let me say this. Jim mentioned it. There is a real budget crisis brewing in Georgia. Uh, some of it's being driven by a slowing economy. Uh, the other part is being driven by the uh, tax windfall, the phantom windfall that did not show up, that was promised out of Washington by President Trump. And consequently, the most important thing, look at the budget hearings and, and department heads, but also read Michael Connell's uh, article on the front page of the AJC today, great business reporter. So, I, sp- I spent about seven, eight years talking to Michael Connell twice a week. 3,900 jobs created in Georgia in December in the middle of holiday shopping. I'm just telling you, that is a bad sign about the future direction of our economy. I hope we don't go down that path but we could go and be involved in a contraction that's going to make these budget crises even greater by the time we get to the end of the session. So let me ask you, how are you seeing this play out in DeKalb County? You're about to give your state of the county speech. How are you going to address what's happening there in terms of the economy? I proposed my budget uh, for 2020 in December, and we are buttoning down the hatches. No new spending, no new jobs. I told my department heads, look, we're going to focus on maintaining what we have. 
Uh, my tax assessor has pointed out that there will be very little new revenue going forward. And now with the state reducing state support to things like the Department of Public Health, counties, and you heard, you saw legislators uh, angrily pushing back on yesterday because these cuts will have impact in a year where they're seeking re-election well, in their local communities. And as Mike knows, excuse me, the, the county jail is the uh, largest mental health institution in each community. Yes. But but going back to the, the, to the gang issue for a second, because I, I don't like that being mixed with the other cuts. Uh, and I don't well, want to. That's an increase, but go ahead. Right, but 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 some are questioning the need for it, uh, and I don't want to put Mike uh, in an awkward position. So let me just give a Cobb scenario. There isn't a Cobb school that doesn't have gangs. There isn't a Cobb school that doesn't have multiple gangs. I've heard that from the police chiefs, etc., for years, and f- and it was increasing rapidly. So for those that wonder if there's a real gang issue in our state, there is. So I want to let the record reflect that uh, uh, CEO Thurman is nodding when you said that there are gang problems in every oh, school. And absolutely. And But the question is, what is the extent of the problem? I think that's what's being debated. Uh, but if it's in my community, we have gangs. Uh, they engaged in uh, uh, violent criminal behavior. The question is, how serious is the problem, and then how should we address it as a state? Uh, I'm not opposed to investing in uh, contradicting gangs. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. The real question is prioritizing the rest of the spending in the All budget. Right. We are running out of time. One real quick thing, Patricia. I've said this a couple of times, asked this question. I'm not sure I've ever framed it properly. I think all of this, for me, raises questions. Has the governor and his people, have they, in fact, communicated clearly and, um, and, and precisely about what all these cuts are needed for? They say the state is doing great economically, um, but they continue to say we're facing hard times. I'm not sure they have quite made the case in the clearest way possible. Well, certainly not to the agency heads who are coming right, up and saying, right. no, no, you can't do this. <laughs> He's also made major financial commitments to teachers. He has a number of campaign promises that are very expensive. So even if we're in a flatline budget, he's made a promise that's going to require cuts elsewhere in the state budget. Right. We are, I'm sorry to, to cut this off. We are out of time. Jim, one of the things this points to is the fact that for the weeks ahead, when you're here, when your colleagues are here, one of the conversations is going to be what is clearly going to be a fight at the state capitol over the budget cuts that the governor wants and uh, the speaker, uh, his budget people are going to go to the mats on some of these issues. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And it's going to be one that we probably won't see. It's, uh, yeah, it'll uh, all take place. Remember, yeah. remember the old Green Door case. I was just <laughs> thinking about the Green Door Committee. All right, we're completely out of time for today's Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for being here. And thank all of you for being here for Political Rewind. We're back again Monday morning at 9 a.m. Take care, everybody.